you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to the small book of Habakkuk. Uh, go to the New Testament. You hit Matthew, a couple of pages to the left, and you will find the little book of Habakkuk. It's our practice at our church to go verse by verse and book by book through the Bible. Uh, we've just finished our study in Ecclesiastes, and it has been a wonderful, encouraging series, and if you've missed any of those, I would encourage you to kind of find whatever you missed and uh, spend time soaking uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, next, Pastor Andrew is going to lead us through the book of First John, so we are looking forward to that. Uh, but in between these two books, I have the opportunity to preach to you from uh, the Bible, so I'm excited to do that. Uh, and I thought, what better to do than to give you a little taste of what our students are experiencing in our student ministry. Um, in our youth group, in our student ministry, we are going through whole books of the Bible so that our students can see really what's in them and then how these books fit together. So, Lord willing, this morning, we are going to be looking at this very short book of Habakkuk. This is a very practical, insightful, and helpful book. In it, we're going to see a man identified as a prophet, and this man is going to struggle in the same ways that we do. Specifically, we're going to see this man struggle with what's called the problem of evil. He's going to look at pain and suffering and injustice around him and ask, he's going to ask some questions of God. And we ask many of the same questions when we see the things that are going on around us. In preparing for this message I came across um, uh, a book written by a man, uh, his name is John Humphreys. His book is called In God We Doubt. Now, he's an agnostic, uh, but in this book, he kind of uh, uh, recounts his walk away from Christianity. And this is uh, kind of some of the things he says. He takes issue with how Christians talk about God. He says in his book, you know, God is talked about as is loving and all-knowing and caring and gentle and kind, and that's a problem for him. In talking about that, he says, this sounds just like the kind of man you would want your daughter to marry. But listen to how he continues. He says, quote, but if you are a doubter, you look at the world around you and you say something along the lines of this. You're telling me God is like this. What he means is, God is loving and patient and kind and gentle. You're telling me God is like this, and yet this is the world he created. You must be joking. And honestly, I don't think this man is alone. The presence of evil around us, uh, the, the, the presence of the evil that we see, it's difficult to reconcile the evil that we see and the God we read about in the Bible. Now, I don't encourage you to do this, uh, but I did a, just a quick uh, search, a Google search for national headlines, and um, I could only stand a little bit of it because of how depressing it was, but here are just a few of the national headlines. Teen doorbell prank spirals into vicious assault involving state trooper. Baltimore CEO found on apartment rooftop, died of strangulation and blunt force trauma. YouTube mom charged with aggravated child abuse of two out of her six children. And I, I had to stop. I just, I couldn't keep on reading. 
but, but we read these stories and we might think, oh man, the world is such a terrible place, it's falling apart. But I, I know many of the stories of, of you all in, in here this morning, I know that the problem of evil and suffering isn't a problem out there. It's not a problem that we read about in some distant land, but it's a problem that, we, uh, that many of us have come face to face with. So how do we reconcile the God that we talk about and the world that we see? It's a difficult topic, and uh, the good thing is we aren't left to speculate. I think the book of Habakkuk is going to provide a wonderful and helpful way forward, and I've entitled this message, Faith in Frustrating Times. A little bit of context before we jump into this book. Uh, We don't know much about this prophet called Habakkuk other than his name. We know this book was written around 600 BC, right before the invasion of Babylon to Judah. And then the other interesting note about this book is that this isn't a normal type of um, prophetic book that we would expect. Typically, God speaks to his people through a prophet, and that prophet has the message that his people need to hear. This book, however, is almost like you and I get the privilege of sitting outside of the window or near the door as God speaks to Habakkuk, and we get to sort of eavesdrop and listen to this dialogue. Now, again, we're going through a whole book, um, so we're not going to be able to read all of it. I would encourage you to read this on your own, but we're just going to highlight some of the some verses to get us uh, to, to get a feel for the overall message of the book. So we're going to break this book up into three parts, uh, and that's going to be the outline for this morning. Three movements to the book of Habakkuk. And here's the first uh, point of our outline this morning. Number one, the complaint. And that's going to be from verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. So the complaint. We begin with a complaint, and it's really a question, and the question can be formed uh, uh, this way. Why won't God act to end evil? That's going to be in the first four verses. So look with me at at, at chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle or the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? He says, how long am I to continue praying in utter silence with you doing nothing? The the sense of this verse is that Habakkuk has been praying to God repeatedly over and over and absolutely nothing has changed. And in verse 3, Habakkuk kind of elaborates on the situation that he sees and he offers three pairs of words to sum up uh, kind of the society he he is seeing. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? The understanding of iniquity here is is injustice and wrong being sort of this immorality that he sees. So there's injustice that leads to the immoral oppression and harm of God's people. This would look like politicians um, abusing power, manipulating the law to benefit themselves, to benefit those around them, to benefit their their special interests, interest groups, all for their own benefit. This would look like a legal system rife with, with injustice, where the law doesn't work anymore. It's, it's just not doing what it's supposed to do. He goes on in verse 3, there is destruction and violence before me. 
She's painting a picture of chaos and acts, actless, uh, 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 and acts of senseless violence. This would be the type of society where children are abused on a regular basis, where criminals disregard life and they take life, and, and the newspaper is flooded with stories of just people taking life, people killing innocent others. He goes on in verse 3, there is strife and contention and they arise. Essentially, there's conflict all around Habakkuk. This is what he sees. People are at each other's throats. Marriages are falling apart. Whole groups of society are fighting with each other. Everything seems to be marked with conflict. And this leads to a society that is characterized by injustice. Look at verse 4. So, in light of everything I'm seeing, the law is paralyzed. Injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He says the law is numb. There is no justice. And the justice that there is, the justice that we can find, it's broken. It's, it's, it's not real justice at all. So this sort of society that Habakkuk is painting, this picture that he paints, it's not hard for us to imagine. He's describing a society full of crime, violence, corruption, mock legal battles, and the defeat of the righteous. And you can almost hear the frustration through the pen of the, of the prophet as he cries out, Lord, why don't you act? You see, this isn't a pro- problem for just Habakkuk as he sees what's going on around him. It's a problem for all of us as we see suffering and injustice around us as well. But whether you're a Christian or not, you have to do something with the problem of evil. You have to somehow reconcile the pain that you feel and the things that you're going through. I think there's only one of two ways to reconcile that. You can either reconcile that with responding by injustice or indifference rather, thinking that suffering is pointless. There is no God, so nothing matters. In his book, River Out of Eden, Richard Dawkins talks about pain and suffering this way. He says, quote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason for it. You won't find any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind pitiless indifference. He concludes, quote, DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its tune. Nothing matters. There is no creator. There is no right, and there is no wrong. So just cross your fingers and hope you end up in the camp that doesn't suffer. Now, that's how an atheist deals with the problem of evil, with the suffering around us. But That is not how believers deal with suffering. We, like Habakkuk, we have a God that we can go to 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 find help and direction to try to make sense of all this. And God answers. He doesn't doesn't stay silent here. God answers Habakkuk, and we see this in verses 5 through 11. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
So God is picking up on Habakkuk's own words here. He says, you look and see the injustice all around you, but I want you to look and see what I'm about to do. He says, you are going to be amazed and astounded. You're not even going to believe it. He says, I'm going to do something about it. Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So as a side note, when you see the word uh, Chaldeans, this is just a synonym for uh, the Babylonians. So God is saying, I am in control, I am sovereign, I am doing something about the injustice that you see. I am raising up a very terrible, wicked nation, and I will punish my people. And in very beautiful poetry, God describes these people. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. You have a problem with injustice around you. They make the rules themselves. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. Habakkuk describes them and says, listen, I know, I see, and I am doing something about it. I will punish all of those who perpetrate this injustice. And on the surface, we might think, well, Habakkuk surely would, would praise God. Habakkuk would be applauding God because finally something is going to be done about the evil that I see. But that's not what Habakkuk does. He's confused, he's confounded, but he doesn't stay silent. He goes back to God to try to make sense of this confusion. So we see another complaint in verse 12. Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. You see, it's hard to understand really the confusion that Habakkuk feels right now. See, he, he goes to God, he's not silent, he goes to God, and notice this isn't grumbling like the children of Israel did uh, early on, like in the, in the book of Numbers or Deuteronomy. This isn't sinful complaining on Habakkuk's part. He goes to God appropriately. And he goes to God based on his own character. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He says, I know you are eternal. And because you're eternal, I know you don't change. He says, you are the Lord, that is covenantal language, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the, uh, this is the, the name of God given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, you are my God, my Holy One. We shall not die. So he says, I, I know that you don't change. I know you've promised certain things to your people. So I know that this coming judgment will not ultimately mean annihilation. I know that there's hope on the other side of this judgment. But I don't understand. I don't understand. How is it, Lord, that you who are good and just and holy, how can you use someone like the Babylonians? Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and, re and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
See, the basis for Habakkuk's confidence that this is not the end for God's people is also the basis for his confusion. God, how can you be good and work this way? God, how can you be good and use people like this? Either it seems like you aren't really aware of how wicked they are, you're, you're somehow overlooking their wickedness, or you're looking on their, their wicked, evil lifestyle in some sort of approval. And Habakkuk kind of provides this illustration, this fishing illustration to show really how bad they are in verse 14 and following. You make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, that is the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, he brings them, uh, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and he's glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is, and his food is rich. And so he, he, he describes them in very vivid terms. And he ends with this just really penetrating question. Is he, the Babylonians, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly, kill, mercilessly killing nations forever? God, will you allow these people to continue to live like they are living? Habakkuk looks at God's character and it seems to be out of step with what he knows, with what's happening. If I could put it this way, he looks, uh, he looks at God's attributes and he can't reconcile, reconcile them with his actions. God, how can you use evil and still be good? God, God how can you allow terrorists to, to kill and mutilate people and blow themselves up and kill men, women, and children? How can you allow this to happen and still be good? God, how can you allow thousands of children to be sold into slavery and exploited for terrible means? How can you allow this and still be good? How can you allow wicked people to gain power and to manipulate the law and write laws that are unjust and actually make it more difficult for your people to worship you? God, how can you do these things, allow these things, and still be good? Whether it's the presence of evil or God's use of evil, the prophet raises a very, very important question here. There are questions people navigate today, and, and it's a question we ask now. How, how do we navigate the presence of evil and then God's apparent overlooking of evil? How, how do we make sense of all this? Now, much has been written about the problem of evil and the Christian response there. So let me, uh, here in the message, let me just kind of uh, give you three kind of points to guide us in this conversation about evil. Kind of three things to help orient us on this topic. First, God is sovereign over evil. There is no, th th this idea that God is kind of in his lane and the devil is in another lane and then somehow, sometimes the devil kind of crosses over and kind of wins sometime. That is not what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign over all things, including evil. Number two, God is never the author of evil, and God is not responsible for evil. You see this throughout the Old Testament. James says the same thing. God is not the author of evil, and therefore he is not responsible for evil. And then number three, humans are responsible for their actions. Yes, we can look all around, and we can see 
evil being perpetrated uh, against helpless people. And we can say, what's going on? Those people, although may be used, the, 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 the evil and wicked things, they are still, they can be used for good. God will ultimately hold those people accountable. So God is sovereign. God is not the author of evil. And humans are responsible for their actions. So the prophet raises these, these issues. He comes to God, and then in chapter 2, verse 1, he waits. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself in the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He pictures himself as a watchman patiently waiting for God to respond. Uh, the ch chapter one started out with Habakkuk looking and seeing injustice all around. And then God says, no, I want you to look and see what I'm about to do. And so now Habakkuk pictures himself as a watchman waiting to look and see how God will answer him. And his patience is going to pay off. God is going to answer him in a very unexpected way. And this brings us to our second main point in our outline this morning, or the second movement of Habakkuk. Uh, this point number two is the timeless truth. That's what I'm calling the timeless truth. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 2, all the way to chapter 2, verse 20. So for the first time, the Lord is introduced as the speaker. Verse 2, the Lord answered me. He said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Habakkuk, what I'm about to show you, I want you to write down and make it clear for everybody so that... When someone reads it, they can go and tell someone else that everybody will know. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is saying, what I'm about to tell you will absolutely happen. Just be patient. Trust me and wait and wait for me. And here in verse 4, I think, is, is where we get this timeless truth idea. He says, behold, look, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous will live by faith, by his faith. So he says, behold, his soul, this is a reference to the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, uh, the people doing all of these wicked things, the one God is going to use to punish his people. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That person... Later on in this chapter, we are going to see that they will be punished. But in contrast to, to those who are puffed up to the arrogant, he says there is another group of people. It is the righteous. And the righteous will live by faith. Such a simple but impactful truth. It's only three words in the Hebrew. The righteous, that is those who have a right standing with God. The righteous will live. They will endure this coming judgment and they will do it. By faith. For, her, for Habakkuk, God is saying, you, you in a right standing with me, trust me. Trust me even though judgment is coming. Trust me even though all of the circumstances seem to point to the fact that I might not be in control. Just wait. Trust me. Live by faith. That's the message for Habakkuk and, and, and those people living in Judah at the time of this coming judgment. But I said it was a timeless truth the fact is that this verse is quote quoted <clears throat> three times in the new testament three times 
And it's all intended, I think, to show us what it means for New Testament believers to live by faith. So uh, you can either turn there or just write these references in the margin of your Bible. Uh, But Romans chapter 1, we already read it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Here, the whole point of the book of Romans is for Paul to illustrate, to show how a holy God and a rebellious people can live in harmony, how they can be reconciled. And God's going to say it's through the gospel. And like Pastor Jason read earlier, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So here Habakkuk is showing this is how one becomes right with God. This is how one gets to that category of being in a right standing with God. It is by faith. And not just faith that everything will turn out well. It is faith in the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, like we we talked about earlier, there is a holy and just God. And we have rebelled against him. And we stand rightly condemned because of our actions, because of our sin and rebellion, but because of God's grace and his mercy, he sent his son to pay the penalty, that is death, that we deserve. And so now legally, we can be declared not guilty and righteous because of Christ's sacrificial atoning death on the cross. And God calls all men everywhere, all people, to repent, to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ. That is the gospel. And Paul is saying, faith in that gospel is how you become righteous with God. But this verse is quoted again in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Here, the, the, the point of Galatians now, instead of kind of a defense of the gospel, Paul is writing to the Galatians and he's telling them, listen, don't confuse a workspace righteousness with genuine righteousness that comes through faith in the gospel. You don't come to faith and then work to earn your standing. You live by faith. Look at Galatians chapter 3 or listen to Galatians chapter 3 verses uh, 10 through 11. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for for the righteous shall live by faith. Here, Paul is highlighting this distinction between depending on my works to keep me in a right standing with God and my faith in Christ to keep me in a right standing with God. The righteous or the just, they live by faith. And again, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer of Hebrews, the entire book is written to give confidence to to believers who are facing persecution, who are tempted to turn back from Christ. And in this context, the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10, we're starting in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, Uh, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. 
Here the writer of Hebrews is highlighting, highlighting the need for faith in times of trial, in times of persecution, and in suffering. So all three instances of Habakkuk 2.4 being quoted in the New Testament, they all work together to help us, New Testament believers, understand what it means to live by faith, what that means. We, we come to faith in Christ, that is, we, we have life uh, in Christ through faith in the gospel. We remain, we live every day through faith in the gospel, not works, not trying to earn a standing. And we persevere through faith. When things are falling apart, we continue to have faith in God. So back to Habakkuk. So having given this, this dynamic truth, this timeless truth about, uh, about these two groups of people, the, the puffed up one and the righteous one, God goes on to explain that he will ultimately, in Habakkuk's time, he will deal with the evil practices of the Babylonians. And he does it by pronouncing these five woes or five judgments. And we see this in verse 6. Uh, he says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Babylon is going to be judged for their greed. The second judgment in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. They are going to be judged for profiting from evil means to protect themselves. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So they're going to be judged for building their cities through bloodshed. The fourth judgment in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. God says that they are going to be judged for deceiving and exploiting others around them. And then the last judgment in verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. They are going to be judged for their idolatry. So this timeless truth that God gives Habakkuk is that he will bring justice. Yes, in Habakkuk's time and in our time, God allows evil things to happen for his good purposes, but they will not go unpunished. While we wait for God to ultimately act, the righteous live by faith as we trust God in the face of all physical or external signs that he will make all things right. But a life of faith is a changed life. This timeless truth doesn't, doesn't go on ineffective. It, it does something in the life of those who do live by faith. And this is what we see in the life of the prophet. And there is a change, and this brings us to, to kind of the final movement of the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3. We see, and this is the third point of our message, the third point of our outline, the example of living by faith. The example of living by faith. And this is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Now remember, as we dive into this rich chapter, remember the context. Habakkuk right now, currently, is repeatedly crying out to God and asking God for justice. So there's injustice around him. And then God says, don't worry, be patient and wait. Because I'm bringing a force that is going to destroy you. I am going to rebuke you 
by using the, the Babylonians. That's the context. That's what Habakkuk is, is going through right now. And I want you to notice this is how uh, Habakkuk responds. He responds in praise. He responds in praise. Why do I say that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. This is a, a musical notation. And then look uh, at that last verse in, cha- in chapter 3, verse 19, uh, the last sentence there. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So Habakkuk, in response to everything that he has just heard, he responds in singing this psalm of praise to God. He responds in worship. He responds in adoration. And we don't have time to look at the, the, the substance of his, his psalm here, but I would encourage you to read this, spend time here. It is rich. Essentially, in these verses, what Habakkuk does is he looks back on all of the ways God has delivered his people. He reminds himself of, of God's amazing acts in saving his people and rescuing them from, from bondage in Egypt. And then he reminds himself of how it was that God went before his people. Uh, he went before his people going into the promised land, displacing those people and, and, and conquering these nations here. He, he reminds himself of what God has done and he eagerly anticipates the day when God will do that again, when God will rescue his people. And if you thought that Habakkuk is just kind of overlooking or just being numb about the reality that he's facing, look at verse 16. After he eagerly looks forward to God rescuing his people, verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon uh, upon people who invade us. He shows a somber acceptance of what judgment will be like. And there's a hopeful expectation that justice will ultimately come on those who oppress the Israelites. But I want you to notice how he ends. He ends in joy. Look at verse 17 and following. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the field, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Remember, this culture that he he is in is an agricultural society. That is, when you hear these terms, uh, fig trees and and, and olive uh, fields and herds, this is their livelihood. This is what they depended on for sustenance. And Habakkuk is saying, every part of life will be affected by this coming judgment. Everything is going to be terrible. It's going to be painful. But he he doesn't respond by shutting off his emotions. He doesn't respond by throwing his hands up and saying, well, I guess, you know, God is sovereign, so whatever happens is going to happen, and I'm just going to kind of hold on tight and just kind of hope it it ends up well for me. That doesn't, that's not the picture that we see. He's already reminded himself of God's goodness, 
So he comes to the conclusion that God is able to be trusted even in coming judgment. And, and I don't know if you noticed this, but what is Habakkuk's joy in? Look at verse 18. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk is rejoicing in God. A life of faith doesn't, respond, uh, doesn't rejoice, rather, in our circumstances. Joy doesn't come ultimately from my family being healthy and my job being secure and me getting all of the things that I think I need, me earning that amount of money, me getting that sort of car. That's not where joy ultimately comes from for the believer. Joy is found in God. A believer's joy is not to be found in the shifting sands of our circumstances, but on the solid foundation of God himself. Now, I don't know what you're facing here this morning, but I would ask, can you rejoice in God no matter what you are facing this morning? That's a very very difficult question to answer, but Habakkuk tells us that this sort of rejoicing is only possible when we come to God as our Savior and we look to Him for our strength. I want you to look how, uh, back in chapter 1, flip over a couple of pages, look how Habakkuk starts this book. So chapter 1, verse 2. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Now turn back to the end of the book. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Look at the difference that a life lived by faith makes. And I think this really does get us to the point of the book of Habakkuk. There is injustice all around us. There is evil everywhere. Just turn on the news and you'll see this. But we must be people who patiently trust God. We must be people who live by faith. Now, I think it's good to understand what, what is all in the book of Habakkuk. And it's good to, to know how it all fits together. But if this morning ends with just you gaining some knowledge, I will have failed, okay? Uh, the Bible is more than just a textbook. I think it's, it's intended to change us. So I want to just leave you with three sort of applicational points, three takeaways from, from this book that I hope will be uh, sort of uh, helpful, beneficial for you, something that you can meditate on. So we'll end here, three takeaways from the book. Uh, and here's, here's the first takeaway, the first applicational point. God will deal with evil. God will deal with evil. He will deal with suffering that we see around us. And we talked about this a little bit earlier in the book as well. When we see or experience evil and injustice, it's tempting to think that God doesn't care. It's tempting to think that God either doesn't care or maybe 
God does care, but he's just not able to do anything about it. He, he lacks the power to affect any real change in my life. That God maybe doesn't even care. God, how long will I cry to you and you will do nothing? But you see, Habakkuk teaches us that one day, God will come and bring final justice to our broken world. The oppression and the injustice and the violence and even death will ultimately one day be dealt with. But we are told while we wait, to wait patiently for that day to come. Evil will not have the last word. Death will not ultimately be victorious and our tears will be wiped away one day. Even suffering will be a faint echo when we see our king face to face. God will deal with evil and suffering. But here's the second takeaway I want you guys to think about. Taking our struggles to God is an expression of a mature faith, okay? Let me say that one more time. Taking our struggles to God is an expression of a mature faith. I don't know why, but it seems like in American Christianity, uh, we conflate, we, we kind of join the idea of Christian maturity and this sort of kind of stoicism. Here's what I mean. When hard times come, we think we shouldn't, we shouldn't lament those things. We shouldn't have a difficult time because, well, we should always be rejoicing. We, we think that any trial is an opportunity for us to show God how strong we are, that Lord, I can bear up underneath this, this trial. I'm going to grip my teeth and I'll make it through and I'll, I'll make you proud of me. And any expression of sadness or, or questioning or even doubt, well, we push those things away because it shouldn't be what God's people do in the midst of trials. But Habakkuk, I think he flies in the face of that sort of thinking. And I think Habakkuk is a vibrant expression of what mature faith is. Mature faith is one that goes to God with questions, with, with difficulties, with frustrations. Because listen, God knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He knows what it's like to live in a fallen and broken world. He knows that it's difficult. And because of that, he doesn't desire his followers to be stoics. Instead, like a father with hurting children, he desires us to come to him and be open, be honest. He already knows, but he desires us to come to him and express those things to him. Taking our struggles to God is an expression of a mature faith. And then this last takeaway, very simply, we must be people who live by faith. Now listen, we must be people who live by faith. I want to emphasize that idea of live. We must be people who live by faith. We aren't people who give lip service to the gospel or, well, the gospel is something kind of like a doorway that got me into this club and now it's kind of all up to me and I just, I got to work really hard because I want God to love me. And more than that, I want God to like me. So I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to stay in this box, and I'm going to try really, really, really hard so that God is pleased with me, so that when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I can rest knowing I did a good job that day. That is not living by the gospel. 
Because the gospel says, you don't need to earn a standing before God. You don't need to fight for your spot at the table. You are a child of the king, and nothing you do can revoke that. So we, we are people who live by faith every day, resting in the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, I am justified, and there is no condemnation for me. I have a spot at the table. Not only must we be people who live by faith, but we must be people who live by faith. Because you and I both know one day suffering will come. Trial, pain, heartache, it will find us. And in that moment, we are going to be tempted to doubt God's goodness. But when that happens, we must remind ourselves of God's goodness we must openly and honestly take those frustrations and concerns to God, and we must allow all of that to fuel our faithfulness, our faith in trial. We must be people who, when things fall apart, we patiently wait for Him, we trust Him, and we live by faith. And that's my prayer for you all here this morning, that we would be a people who would uh, be categorized, characterized, described as people who live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we are, Lord, we are so thankful that we do not have to try to navigate uh, life in this broken world alone. We are so thankful that we know who to go to for answers. So we can go to an omnipotent, omniscient God who is in control of all things. And we can look to you to bring justice that we know will come one day. But Father, while we wait for your coming justice, Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us, enable us, strengthen us to live by faith. That we would live not trying to earn a standing before you. That we would live not sort of as Stoics pushing away pain and heartache. But that we would live by faith. That is patiently trusting you until you come and ultimately make all things new. And Father, until then, help us to trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.